Great. Well, this morning is our last regular Sunday of 2018, before we get into all the Christmas stuff from next week. And uh, we're going to pause today at in, uh, where we're at in our series in Acts, and then pick that up again in February. We are picking up the story in Acts chapter 19, which is around page 1100 and something. And uh, let me set the scene for you in terms of where we've got to. So the Apostle Paul has been in the city of Corinth. He's been there for about 18 months. and He's had a time of incredibly fruitful ministry in the city of Corinth. And then he gets going again and he's got some friends he's made in Corinth called Priscilla and Aquila. And he travels with them and uh, first gets in a boat heading to a town called Ephesus. And then he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And uh, while he heads off to Jerusalem, Priscilla and Aquila are going to stay in Ephesus. Now, let me help orientate us geographically. So we have, in terms of the Apostle Paul's travels, you're going to have to press a button a few times, Angie. Uh, for some reason, Jerusalem has disappeared in terms of the name, but that white blob at the bottom is Jerusalem. So the Apostle Paul and his friend Barnabas, a number of years before, have set out from Antioch, where a great church had been started, and they've gone out into these cities, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Derby and Lystra, and amazing things have happened there. And keep pressing the button, Angie. And then they try and go into what's called the province of Asia, but the Spirit of God stops them from going. And so they head off to Troas, they catch a boat across to Philippi, uh, start a church in Philippi, and then head on down through Macedonia and through Greece, Thessalonica, uh, Athens, and then into Corinth, where Paul has this ministry, then goes back to Ephesus, then back across to Jerusalem, spend some time with the church in Jerusalem, back up to Antioch, and then where we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 19, Paul is again moving around. He keeps doing this big anti-clockwise circle throughout this region, so he travels visiting those churches he's previously started, and then heads back to Ephesus again. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila have been added to the team, and a guy called Apollos has been added to the team as well, and he's been in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. And then he leads, leaves to go to Corinth, and while Apollos leaves to go to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul comes back, and he goes to Ephesus. And Ephesus is a great, big, important city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and a really important commercial center. And what is about to happen in Ephesus when Paul arrives in town is going to be absolutely spectacular. And so we're going to be reading the story of what happens in Ephesus and uh, seeing what uh, God's going to, what does in that city and, and allowing that to inspire us about what God might do in our city. And uh, Grace is going to help us with the reading. We're going to try and get through the whole chapter and uh, see how we go. So Grace, can you come and can you read the first Seven verses of Acts chapter 19. While, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. 
So Paul turns up in Ephesus, he meets a group of people who are saying they're disciples, and in the book of Acts, whenever people are described as disciples, unless that's qualified by being disciples of somebody else, so disciples of John, for example, disciples always means disciples of Jesus. So these are about, a group of about 12 people who are claiming to be disciples of Jesus. But there's something very odd about this group. Now they believed. Paul says, what, did you, what happened to you when you first believed? But there's something which is defective, something that's missing in their knowledge of Jesus and their experience of Jesus. Uh, they say that they've had John's baptism, but they haven't heard that the Holy Spirit has been given. And so the Apostle Paul does some pastoral diagnostics. What's going on with this group who claim to be disciples, but there just seems to be some things which aren't really clear in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. They've received John's baptism. What's that about? Well, John was the messenger who came before Jesus, and John was a messenger who pointed to Jesus, and he baptized people, uh, but it was a pointing to Jesus, and Jesus was the one who was going to baptize people as well, but Jesus wasn't just going to baptize people in water like John did. Jesus was going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. This is what John himself says in Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this group of disciples in Ephesus, they'd had John's baptism. They'd repented. They'd wanted to be right with God. So they'd been baptized in the way that John uh, baptized people. And so they should have heard John's message. And John's message was about the Messiah to come, who'd be the one who'd baptize people in the Holy Spirit. But they just don't seem at all clear about what really is going on. Now, the Apostle Paul several months before this, had been in Ephesus himself. He'd spoken in the synagogue to the Jews in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos had all been in Ephesus, presumably witnessing and teaching about Jesus. But these group of 12 that Paul encounters, they'd picked up a, the message of Jesus, but only in a very partial way, a very incomplete way. And it's probably not a great analogy, but I wonder if it's a bit like if You've got talking to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, people who might in some sense claim to be disciples of Jesus, but whose actual knowledge and experience of Jesus is kind of missing and lacking and incomplete and in many ways wrong. Now, there's obviously something so attractive about Jesus that these 12 wanted to be called his disciples, even though they seem to know pretty much nothing about him. And, And that's worth pausing and thinking about, that even just a kind of a partial glimpse of Jesus gives us a glimpse of someone who's so attractive, so desirable, that these 12 wanted to be known as his his disciples. In the Psalms, in Psalm 34, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And you know, we have to Remember this, that the Lord is good. We're to taste and see. Those very physical things it says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This time of year, we often talk about the gift of Christmas. And even that, as we're trying to point people away from Christmas presents and point them towards Christ, even that kind of phrase can seem a little bit trite. But we need to see how precious and how desirable Jesus is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And these 12, they tasted and seen something, but their seeing and their tasting was partial, incomplete, 
very uh, defective, really. They got a partial understanding of what John had taught and an even more partial understanding about Jesus, but they still wanted to be disciples of Jesus. They, they knew something, but they needed to know the complete picture. And so the Apostle Paul gets to work doing some kind of pastoral diagnostics with them, trying to work out what is going on with them. So this is kind of how I paraphrase what happens when Paul encounters these 12 disciples. It's something like this. He says to them, you say you're disciples, so what is your experience of the Spirit? Because you can't know Jesus without knowing who the Holy Spirit is, because it's the Spirit who makes Jesus known to us. So you have to know something of the Holy Spirit at work in your life to have a clear view of who Jesus is. You don't know the Spirit's been given. Wow. So what happened at your baptism? Because you must have been baptized because you say you're disciples, and in the New Testament, there's no category of an unbaptized disciple. It just makes no sense. If, you're, if you say you're a disciple, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, then that automatically implies uh, that you will have been baptized because to not be a baptized believer just makes no sense. It's like, if you excuse the illustration, but it's a good illustration, it's a bit like saying that you're married but you've never had sex with the person that you're married to. That just doesn't make any sense. That's what baptism is a bit like. If you say you're a disciple but you're not baptized, it just, there's no category for that in the New Testament. Oh, you received John's baptism. Okay, things are getting a little clearer. You don't really know Jesus at all, do you? Because you haven't even really grasped what John was teaching about, because John was teaching about the Messiah. He was teaching about Jesus, the one to come. But you do want to know this Jesus. That's great. So let's get you baptized properly in the name of Jesus. And let's lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit. You can't really know Jesus without knowing the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see who Jesus really is. And it's the Holy Spirit who draws us into fellowship with Jesus and with the Father. Michael Reeves in his fantastic book, The Good God, which I'd really encourage you to read if you haven't. It's only small that's a brilliant, brilliant book. He says this about the work of the Holy Spirit. How great and lovely is the work of the Spirit. He unites us to the Son so that the Father's love for the Son also encompasses us. He draws us to share the Father's own enjoyment of the Son. And he causes us to share the Son's delight in the Father. What could be more delicious than to keep in step with a spirit whose purpose is that. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit brings us into fellowship, into friendship, into enjoyment with God, with Jesus the Son, and with our Father. And what we see in the book of Acts, as happens in this case, is that routinely baptism in water and experiencing the Holy Spirit both happen at the same time. People receive the Spirit there's an encounter with the Spirit of God and then they get baptized in water or they get baptized in water and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And both of these things, both getting baptized in water and being baptized in the Spirit, they're an experience. You don't uh, have to be told that you have experienced them because 
you know that you have experienced them. If you have been baptized in water, you don't have to be told that you got wet. You experienced it. You knew it. You were there. You felt it. You knew what it was to be dry and then to be wet and to come out of the water to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And if you've received the Holy Spirit, if you experience the Holy Spirit, you know that as well. You don't need to be told the Holy Spirit has been given to you. You know that you have received the Holy Spirit. And on this occasion, one of the ways in which this is demonstrated is that these 12 disciples start to speak in other languages and they begin to prophesy. Now, not everybody who receives the Holy Spirit will speak in other languages and prophesy, but those are kind of normal things for those who have received the Spirit. These are uh, normal experiences for those who know the Holy Spirit. And both of these might seem a little bit strange. They are a little bit strange. Speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues is a bit strange. But it's something which the Holy Spirit often gives to people. It's a gift that often is given. That You receive the Spirit, you start to speak out praises to God in a language which isn't your own, but which enable kind of your spirit to engage with the Spirit of God and a freedom to praise Him which helps you kind of break through the limitations of your own native tongue. Prophecy is kind of normal, where God reveals things to us which we wouldn't otherwise see, where the Spirit of God awakens in us a kind of a, an alertness to what is happening, to seeing things more with the eyes of God, where things maybe looked a bit monochrome before. Suddenly we see things in color, that stuff gets revealed. The Word of God opens up to us in a new way. We see things in one another's lives that prophecy is kind of normal as well. And I think one of the things for us is that we need to have an increased expectation of the normality of these kinds of things. These things are normal. You receive the Holy Spirit, your eyes are open to who Jesus is, and it's kind of normal to receive these gifts. We're meant to, that it's normal to speak in tongues, it's normal to prophesy. That's what happens to these 12. It's often our experience as well. And we need to experience and go on experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. Michael Reeves again, the life the Spirit gives is not an abstract package of blessing. It is his own life that he shares with us, the life of the fellowship with the Father and the Son. Thus the Spirit is not like some divine milkman leaving the gift of life on our doorsteps only to move on. The gift of the Spirit isn't just like a bottle of milk that gets left on your doorstep once and that's job done. No, we need to know an ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit, of the reality of His presence and power at work amongst us. When Paul arrived in Ephesus and met these 12, he said, did you receive the Spirit when you first believed? It's a question for us. What is our experience of the Holy Spirit at the moment? The reason we need to know the Holy Spirit is because it's all about Jesus. And the way that we get to know Jesus more is by knowing the Holy Spirit more. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes so we can see more of Jesus. If we want to know Jesus, we need to know the Holy Spirit. What is your experience of the Holy Spirit? At the end of our time this morning, I'd love to pray for people to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, that you would know an experience of God at work in your life. When we start the uh, new year on the 6th of January, the first Sunday in January, we're going to be gathering here for one of our worship evenings. 
And on that occasion, we particularly want to push into praying for people to know the real, real experience of the presence of God in His Holy Spirit. We're going to be praying for people that night to encourage you to mark that in your diaries. Come with faith, come with expectancy that God will encounter you, that you'll encounter Him. It's all about Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, we need to know the Holy Spirit. Second thing is that Jesus is powerful. Grace, can you come and read the next part of the story? Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. A few months before this, Paul had been in Ephesus briefly, and the Jews had said to him to please stay with them and teach more about Jesus, but he left at that time, and then he comes back and he goes to the synagogue and he starts to teach about Jesus, and this is a three-month process, which is actually quite a long time. Often Paul gets kicked out of synagogues much quicker than this, but he's there for three months teaching about Jesus until they start to get obstinate and say, we don't want to hear about this anymore, so then he packs up in the synagogue and goes next door to Tyrannus's place, and Tyrannus was probably some kind of philosophy lecturer. You've got to remember this is the ancient Greek world and there was lots of interest in philosophy and there would have been uh, philosophy lecturers who would have gathered, gathered disciples, would have gathered crowds and Tyrannus was teaching in a lecture hall and he would have probably given lectures first thing in the morning, that's how the day was structured and then Paul would have got hold of his lecture hall, would have hired it out once Tyrannus had finished and that was probably between 11 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon which 
for most of the population at the time was siesta time. Normally work started very early and people stopped working at 11 then had a long siesta and then got back to work about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the picture we have of Paul at this time is that he is working. He's working as a tent maker in the morning, normal working hours, gets to 11 o'clock, Tirana stops teaching in his lecture hall, Paul takes over and then Paul starts teaching about Jesus in this lecture hall during the heat of the day and the impression we get what happens is that even though it's siesta time clearly loads of people would rather forego their siesta in order to come and hear Paul preach about Jesus Christ something quite extraordinary happens people are giving up their normal patterns of life in order to come and hear Paul talk about Jesus and it says the whole province of Asia was intensively evangelized. Now that's amazing because previously back in chapter 16 of Acts we read that Paul and his friends tried to get into the province of Asia and they felt God saying to them that they weren't meant to and now it says that everyone in Asia heard the words of the Lord. And uh, this just shows that the Lord's timing is often different from ours. Paul would try to get to one place to preach, being kept from doing so. Now he's in Ephesus and the whole region of Asia is hearing about the words of of the Lord. He's at the hall of Tyrannus preaching and team members of his team are going out and starting churches across this whole region. For example, uh, let's have a map up. Here's a picture of what we now call Turkey. So Ephesus over there where it says Ephesus Archaeological Museum, fantastic ruins at Ephesus you can go and see. And then, uh, for example, the church at Colossae was started uh, by um, Epaphras, about 120 miles from Ephesus. Those little dots next to Colossae, that's uh, uh, the churches of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And across that whole region, that what we now think of as, as Western Turkey, which in, in the Roman language is the province of Asia, churches started across that region, the whole region evangelized. And while that's going on, there's an extraordinary upping of the spiritual temperature in the city of Ephesus. There's miracles happening and it says that God did not just miracles, miracles are pretty amazing, but God did extraordinary miracles. So these are kind of like A plus miracles. These are miracles with miracles on top of them. And weird stuff is happening. So it says that even handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched, and these would have been things to do with his work as a tent maker. Actually, the literal interpretation of handkerchiefs is, is sweat rags. And you can imagine it's hot in Turkey, and Paul's working as a tent maker, and so he would have probably had a, a rag tied around his head to mop up the sweat as he was working hard, manual labor, making tents. And then people were taking these sweaty handkerchiefs, and they were laying them on the sick, and the sick were getting healed. Now, what is all that about? I mean, it's just plain bonkers. Um, see something similar with the ministry of Jesus. There were times in Jesus' ministry when it says that people just touched the hem of his garments and received healing. Now what's going on? Well, there's no power in sweaty handkerchiefs or in people's clothes. There's power in Jesus. And it was the power of Jesus that was being displayed. And even kind of through these physical objects, it was a representation of the power of Jesus at work. And Ephesus was a place that was very interested in spiritual power. It was a place where people had a real belief and a real experience of what we might call the supernatural. And in that context, we find the power of Jesus being displayed in extraordinary ways. And there's this particular incident with the sons of 
Sceva. Now, what seems to be going on is that there were a crowd of Jewish exorcists in Ephesus who were going around kind of doing what we'd probably think of as kind of witch doctory type stuff, trying to sort people's lives out through various incantations. In, what's the word? Incan, incantations, that's the one. And kind of magic spells and that kind of thing. And uh, Jews were often regarded as being especially effective in magic. And so there's this guy called Sceva, and he's described as a Jewish chief priest. Now, there was a Jewish chief priest, but the Jewish chief priest was actually in Jerusalem. That's where the chief priest was. So it seems that this guy, Sceva, was kind of printing up his business cards, saying, I'm Sceva, Jewish chief priest, which was helping him in his business of, being a, of making money by being an exorcist in the city of Ephesus because it just looked more impressive, not just an exorcist, but I'm um, the chief priest. And so there seems to be more powerful magic. And uh, his sons start to try and use the name of Jesus to help them in their magic spells. And there's this brilliant phrase where the demon speaks to them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And they get the stuffing kicked out of them. Amazing story. And that makes people sit up and take notice of what is going on. And while the story is a bit weird, it's really the conclusion that we need to focus on. That's the point. Because what happens is that the people of Ephesus start to realize that they've been putting their hopes in what is just a pale imitation of the real deal. They've been putting their hopes in all these kind of this magical mumbo-jumbo, and then they see the power of Jesus, and they realize that his power is so much greater. And that leads to this moment where there's this great public burning of all these magical scrolls they had stored up, and it says they were worth 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was worth a day's wage, so whatever your day's wage is, hey, it's a lot of money. It's millions of pounds worth of stuff that was burnt here. And the thing about magic is that magic works. The power of magic is in its secrecy. Now, that's true of all magic. It's true of magic tricks. It's true of illusionists. The power of an illusion is you see a trick done and you think, how on earth was that done? How did that card appear then? How did that happen? And then if it's explained to you, which of course it normally isn't because the whole point is meant to be secret, if you see the mechanics behind it, suddenly it kind of loses its power as a trick. You just say, oh, okay, now I understand. The power of the trick is in its secrecy. That's also true of what we might call black magic sorcery. Actually, its power is in its secrecy. There's these secret incantations, these secret spells. It's true of secret societies. Groups like the uh, Freemasons and others. Where's the power? It's in the kind of the secrecy. There's these secret rituals and you have to be admitted into secrecy and there's power in that. And it's not that the thing itself actually has any power, but the secrecy makes it seem power, powerful. And the Ephesians had all these special secret scrolls which had all these magic spells on them and they were hoping this would make life work for them. And then when they bring their scrolls out into public, they're effectively renouncing the power of that whole way of looking at life because what is being secret is now being exposed in public, being exposed in the light. And the way this is worded, it seems that some people who'd put their faith in Jesus, well, Paul's amazing ministry is going on, that some of them had still been holding on to their magic scrolls. It was a bit like they were trying to kind of cover the bases. They're now following Jesus, but they've still got all their kind of old 
uh, lucky charms and superstitious things tucked away in a drawer at home, just kind of to cover the bases. And there's no room for that. If you've got Jesus, you don't need a spiritual insurance policy. If you've got Jesus, you don't need a lucky rabbit's foot. You don't need a lucky charm hanging from your car mirror. You don't need any of that stuff. You don't need to touch wood or cross your fingers or throw salt over your shoulder or whatever it might be in our modern context. You don't need any of that stuff. If you've got Jesus, he is enough. And they suddenly see this in Ephesus and they bring out all this old rubbish. And I've been in parts of the world where this still happens, where there's a kind of more lived experience of the supernatural. I've been in certainly more rural settings in Zimbabwe. People come to faith and they've got all the stuff in their back in their houses and part of the deal of coming to faith often that happens at baptism. They bring all their stuff out of their houses, all their magic stuff, bring it out publicly and burn it because they're saying now there's no more space. We don't need all that stuff. And for us we might not have all the kind of the magic stuff but there can, can be all kinds of other things which we rely on in a similarly superstitious way really. It might be getting my kids into the best possible school or might be any kind of stuff in our materialistic, modern, scientific world. But we don't need a spiritual insurance policy if we've got Jesus. And so what we see in the city of Ephesus is really a true revival. The Word of God is preached. Paul just declares the Word of God in the hall of Tyrannus month after month. There's an extraordinary outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit. Miracles happen. There's genuine, life-changing repentance that people change the way they think and people change the way they act. Now, what do we want in our town? Those of us who are part of this church who follow Jesus here, wouldn't we want this in our town? Genuine revival. Word being preached, Holy Spirit powerfully working in people's lives, genuine repentance, the whole thing changing. And you know, that can happen because Jesus is still powerful. Jesus was powerful in Ephesus. Jesus is powerful here too. Last thing, Jesus threatens all other powers. Big chunk of scripture. We need to speed it up. Read fast, Grace. Okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, "'You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business.' And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. 
Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people, but when they realised he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you. So it's been a time of extraordinary ministry in Ephesus. Loads of people have come to faith in Christ. Church has been started all over this region of Asia. There's been spectacular demonstrations of spiritual power. And what that is doing is not just affecting individuals, it's threatening the whole kind of social, economic, religious fabric of life in Ephesus. And that's what the gospel always does. The gospel always threatens idol worship. Now, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. Uh, Here's a picture of an Ephesian uh, Artemis. Those what looked like strange birds next to her are were deer originally. She's usually pictured with deer, goddesses of the hunt. She's a kind of mother goddess figure. And it wasn't just that the religion of worshipping Artemis was being affected by what Paul was preaching, but the whole economics of those who made money out of the worship of Artemis was being threatened as well. And you know, Jesus does that. Jesus tends to kick away the legs of the the stall of the things upon which we rely. (coughs) Jesus is hugely attractive but he's also threatening to our personal autonomy. And he was threatening to Demetrius and his friends. And Demetrius tries to push back against Paul, against Jesus, and uh, starts this kind of mob. And they all rush into the theater, into the stadium. Now, the theater at Ephesus is really impressive. It sat 25,000 people. I was able to go there a few years ago. There I am at the theater at Ephesus. And uh, another picture. Here's my friend Duncan, who's uh, standing in front of it, pretending to be the Apostle Paul, proclaiming. Uh, you can see the, the big bowl of the theatre there. Seats 25,000 people. Now picture the scene that that theatre gets filled up. People from the city rush in. Loads of them don't even know why they're there. There's a riot starting. The Apostle Paul thinks this is a preaching opportunity. He wants to go in and start preaching. But his friends, thankfully, have more wisdom than he does and say, no, not this time, buddy, you need to stay out of trouble. And then this character, Alexander, we don't even know who he is, but he seems to have been a spokesman for the Jews, and it seems that the the Jews wanted to kind of disassociate themselves from the Christians and say, look, we're not responsible this time, it's not us, it's these Christians. He tries to speak, and he's not allowed to, and there's this two hours of 
chaos, them all chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and then in the end, the wisdom of the city clerk prevails. He prevents a riot, he prevents a murder, and it's worth actually just noting that he's never named in this story, don't know what happened to him, but when officials do wise things, that's something to thank God for. We need to pray for wise officials. I mean, at the moment, with all the riots in, in France, we need to pray for wise officials in France. Uh, whether people are Christians or not, we pray for wise officials. And this is the wise official who stopped a riot, stopped a murder. But Demetrius is correct in his analysis of the threat to his religion and to his business. And we need to see this, that Jesus does threaten all that is contrary to him. And sometimes that's enough to provoke a riot. And we should expect Jesus to create a commotion in people's lives. This time of year, all the nativity scenes, a little plastic doll in a manger. Nothing less offensive, less dangerous uh, than that. But that's not how Jesus is. Jesus is the one who threatens powers and authority. Jesus is the one who can provoke riots, provokes commotions in people. If you try and withstand Jesus, it's going to provoke a commotion in your own heart. It's going to provoke a riot in your soul. Because when Jesus comes to town, everything else has to shift. When Jesus comes to town, there's no place for Artemis to be goddess. There's no place for your economic system to be the most important thing in your life. There's no place for any of that. When Jesus comes to town, there's only space for Jesus. He's powerful, and he confronts the other powers. Now, we're leaving the book of Acts for a few weeks until February, God willing. And between now and then, we've got Christmas and a new year to navigate. But as we navigate Christmas and a new year, we need to remember that it's all about Jesus, that he is powerful, and he threatens all other powers. And what we see happens in this city of Ephesus is a picture of what is going to happen everywhere in the world. The gospel will advance. Gospel was proclaimed in Ephesus, and throughout that region, the gospel was proclaimed. Now, all nations and every region and every town in the world will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesus, the power of God was displayed and the power of God will be displayed again in salvation and extraordinary miracles. And all other powers will fall before Jesus. doesn't matter who they are, whether it's Putin, whether it's Trump, Macron, the EU, the... Uh, president of this, the president of that, the, the head of the football association, whoever it is, doesn't matter. All resistance is futile because Jesus is the king. All other powers have fall before him. And that really leaves us in a place where we have to say happy Christmas. Because that is the message of Christmas. The gospel will advance to all nations. The power of God will be displayed and all Tongues will confess and every knee will bow before Jesus because he is the true king. Happy Christmas indeed. Amen? Why don't we stand? I'd love us to pray that 
we might have an Ephesian-type experience. And that might mean that for you today that you need to come and you need to receive a fresh encounter of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for the first time you need to know the Holy Spirit. Who is this Holy Spirit? We hadn't heard there was a Holy Spirit had been given. We can pray for you this morning that you'd know the reality of the Holy Spirit. It might be that like those 12 in Ephesus, you need to get baptized in water. There's no such thing as an unbaptized disciple. It just doesn't make any sense. It's a category that doesn't exist in the Bible. We can talk about that today as well. And it'd be great if we could pray for our town that we might see an Ephesus-like moment when the whole thing gets kind of upended, when suddenly people see who Jesus really is, when people stop relying on the stuff they rely on, when there's true repentance, where there's real demonstrations of the Spirit's power, where the Word is proclaimed, not just to a small crowd, but to multitudes. Mm. It'd be good to see some riots yeah. in our streets provoked by Jesus. <laughs> Let's pray. Yes, Lord, so thank you, Jesus, that you, it's all about you. Thank you that you are powerful. Thank you that you confront and threaten all the other powers, and that's good news. Mm-hmm. Lord, thank you there's no other power which can hold on to us when we've come to you and seen you. Mm-hmm. Thank you that your power is greater. Mm-hmm. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who feels kind of entrapped by other powers, whatever they might be, spiritual or human or material. Lord, I pray there'd be a, a sense of actually the greater power that is in Christ. Mm-hmm before which every other power has to bow the knee. Lord, I pray, Jesus, for us, you pray out your Holy Spirit. You came, you're the one who came to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for some baptizing in the Holy Spirit this morning for the real experience, knowledge of, yes, the Spirit of God has been given that our eyes might be opened afresh to who you really are, that we might might see and experience, we might taste and see that the Lord is good today because the Holy Spirit enables us to, opens our eyes, opens our mouths, our ears, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. So Holy Spirit, would you come and start to minister to us now, work amongst us now. Lord, we know that what happened in Ephesus was that place, that time, your sovereign purpose. But Lord, we dare to dream and dare to ask for something something like that in our day, in our town, Lord. That kind of outbreak of spiritual power, that kind of turning to you, that kind of genuine revival moments. Lord God, that we might have a happy Christmas, a Christmas in which we proclaim you, Savior of the world, powerful above all, King of kings. Come, Holy Spirit we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, Lord. Let's come and worship him. Gemma will lead us and then we'll come and break bread and it'll be a great opportunity to pray for one another, pray for fresh experience and outpouring of the Holy Spirit amongst us this morning.